Thank you, Corey. Good morning, New Beginnings. How are we today? Good. We are in week 11 of our study through the book of 1 Timothy. So if you have your Bible, go there with me. 1 Timothy chapter 4. We've entitled this series, God's Blueprint for the Church. And we've been studying what the church is supposed to look like. What is a godly, Bible-believing church supposed to look like? How many of you have ever been told, this is all wrong? Maybe it was a teacher in school. You turned in an assignment, and the teacher said, this is all wrong. Or a boss at work, you turned in something, and they said, this is all wrong. You know, or your parent, you know, you cleaned something, this is all wrong. Husbands, you probably heard that from your wife at some point, right? After you cleaned something or did something, your wife said, this is all wrong. Is it just me? I don't know. Uh, but it gets worse, right? It can actually be worse than that. Because imagine you're on a, pl- on a, on a flight, and the pilot says, uh-oh, this plane is all wrong. Not good. We're already in the air. Not good, right? Or a doctor Mid-surgery says, oh, no, this surgery is all wrong. Not good. But it gets worse than that. Imagine hearing this, your thinking on salvation is all wrong. Imagine hearing your knowledge about Jesus is all wrong. Now, that would be really bad if it came from another brother or sister in Christ. It would be even worse if it came from God himself. Right? See, it's one thing to be wrong about something at work or at school or a topic that you're debating somebody on, but it's a different thing altogether to be wrong about your eternal salvation. And so there's different levels of error that require different levels of reaction from Christians. Christians don't have to get hot and bothered about every single issue. Some things you can let go. Some things you don't have to say anything about at all. Some things do require you to speak up and say something, right? Some things you have to be willing to call wrong. As God's people, we always stand for the truth and we reject error. Always. Like that's what should define you as God's people. Whether you're a student in school or you're in college or you're at a job or you're retired and you're in your neighborhood, whatever it is, God's people always stand for truth. And we always reject error. We always reject lies. Why? Because if you embrace error, you can't embrace Christ. Simultaneously, you can't do that. You can't embrace Jesus and embrace lies at the same time. You can't. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Right? No man comes to the Father except through me. Uh, that was John 14, 6. John 17, 17. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. What defines us as Christians is what defines Jesus. Jesus is defined by being the truth. And as Christians, we've got to stand for the truth. We've got to stand for the things of God. And since God created the earth, Satan and God have been battling. They've been battling since, since almost, you know, day one almost of this world being created, very, very close to it. And God has given his word to mankind. Why? So that mankind will know God and will know how God desires us to live. That's why we have the word of God. So we get to everything he can to, to thwart the will of God. He always wants to destroy the will of God. What the enemy wants you to do is the enemy wants you to be indifferent to lies or indifferent to the truth. Why? So that you'll embrace these lies. Does this make sense to you? You following along? Right? The enemy wants you to be indifferent to what God says. He wants you to have an indifferent attitude. 
I don't need to be part of church. I don't need to be in Bible study. I don't need to read the Bible on my own. I don't need to do these things. It's okay if I don't. That's for somebody else. I'm busy. I have, you know, this amount of responsibilities. I get a pass. Who are you getting a pass from? Satan? Because God ain't giving you that pass. God expects this of you and I, doesn't he? He expects this of us. Why? Because you won't be able to stand for truth if you don't know the truth. You have to be able to decipher what is a lie, what is the truth by knowing the truth. As a church, we've been studying 1 Timothy verse by verse. And if you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul had named two guys who had gone apostate. They had walked away from the church. And the, the names were Hymenaeus and Alexander, if you guys remember that. They had walked away from the faith. And let me tell you something. Sadly, we, we've seen many people in our lifetimes turn apostate, right? People who once professed to love Jesus just doesn't matter to these people anymore. Again, an apostate is somebody who once professed faith in Christ but has walked away from the faith in Christ. Or they're walking in a way that is, that is counter to the way that God says that we are to walk. Now, what I want you to see is that sometimes an apostate is somebody who still calls themselves a Christian, but their life and their lifestyle doesn't line up with that. They call themselves, a, like, I'm a Christian in name only. Make sense? But nothing else matches up with that. Scripture tells us that apostates are those who have turned away from the truth and they follow the doctrine of demons. Who are demons? Well, demons are, you know, fallen angels who have sinned against God. And so we call them not fallen angels, we call them demons. And demons are the ones who are behind false religions. So when I hear about a false religion, when I hear about any religion that's not Christianity, what do I immediately know? Well, I know that there's, there's demonic activity behind that. Now you might sit there and say, no way. Everything, yes. Right? I, I, would, I would attribute those things to, 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 to demons. Right? Because that's what scripture does. Right? Demons are just like their master, which is who? Satan. They like to disguise themselves as good. They like to disguise what they're saying as good and make everything sound good, but it's really wrong. And so Ephesus, it had crept its ugly head into the church at Ephesus, and Paul has Timothy there. He leaves Timothy, his, his son in the faith, he leaves him there to do what? To help stand against these lies and the false teaching that's kind of crept its way into the truth, into the church. And so he wants Timothy to stay there. Timothy, I need you to stay here and be strong, right? And he teaches Timothy what a church should look like in this letter and in the second letter. He wants him to protect and shepherd the flock from false teaching. The main thing I want to communicate to you this morning is how do you and I guard our hearts against apostasy? Now, I know this has come up multiple times in this letter and it's one of the reasons we're studying it and we're talking about it. And Paul doesn't just talk about it one time. He talks about it multiple times. Why? Because it's an issue that rears its head multiple times. It's an issue that comes up even in the church multiple times. It could come up in our church today. Like this is something that could present its ugly head today. We're, we're not immune from this. There could be somebody here or somebody who wants to come this week who may try to teach something false. We have to be prepared. We have to be on guard against it. And so how do we guard our hearts and our minds against apostasy? How do we ensure that it's not going to be you and I that fall away from the faith? How do we ensure this? What I want you to understand, if you haven't already, you will be tempted to fall away from the faith. Anybody already been tempted? Oh, I have. 
Right? When things get hard, that's pretty much one of the easiest times where you know the enemy, he's licking his chops ready to go, hey, how can I get you to walk away now? Oh, I think I got you right where I want you. You're going to walk away. If I just do this, if I just put these lies and these doubts in your mind, you're right on the edge. You're just going to walk away, and I'm going to be victorious is what he thinks. I mean, just like you, I've seen multiple times, right, kids raised in Christian homes, men, women, teens, once professing faith in Christ. I've seen pastors. I've seen deacons. I've seen worship leaders all professing faith in Christ walk away from Christ. The Jesus that they once sung about or they once preached about or they once taught about, they have walked away from faith in Christ. Apostasy. Does it still happen in the church? Every single day. Like every day all across our world, there are people who are, yeah, walking away from the faith in Christ, from true faith in Christ. And so we know that Jesus said that in the end days, there would be a lot of people who were once professing believers who would walk away from the faith. Now, what's going to contribute to that? One of the things that's going to contribute to that is persecution. Persecution is going to contribute to that, but also false teaching. False teaching that leads people away or leads people to think that they're secure in their salvation when they're really not. And both of those things are on the rise like never before in the church, in America. I think this note is interesting from one scholar, Hybert. He once said this. He said, an apostate is not one who gives up his profession of being a Christian, but one who forsakes the truth of the Christian life. So it's not just, what we talked about a little bit earlier, it's not just somebody who completely abandons the church. Like, you could be sitting here right now and be apostate. Just because you come to church doesn't make you a, a true follower of Christ. I said this before, just because you're standing in a garage does not make you a car. Right? You're like, yes, that, that makes sense. Yes, well, same thing, just because you're in a church doesn't necessarily make you a Christian doesn't necessarily mean that you're honoring God with how you walk and how you live. It doesn't mean that at all. And so how do we guard against this? How can we protect our family? How can we protect our church family from this? Number one, write this down. To avoid apostasy, we have to see apostasy for what it is. It is Satan's goal for every believer. Satan's goal for every believer is apostasy. 1 Timothy 4.1, the Spirit clearly says that in latter times... Uh, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. The phrase that Paul uses there, latter times, it means a little later on, not too far out in the future. Okay, so when Paul writes this, who are turning apostate, there's going to be false teachers who are rising up almost immediately in all these churches, and it's going to continue even to our day. Like, there, I, I see pastors that I once admired and I once thought, hey, I thought highly of them, and I see some of the things that they stand for now or some of the things that they embrace or some of the things they teach, and I'm going apostasy. Like, you have walked away from what you once, you once preached about this, once against this, and now you're actively for this. I'm not going to call out names because that's, I don't want to gossip or anything like that, but it's the truth. The point is well made here, is that every church and every genuine believer has to be standing on guard against apostasy. We all do. See, the, the danger of apostasy always confronts the church. Because what happens when you allow that into your church? What happens when you allow people who are not walking with Christ to teach people about walking with Christ? Or to influence people about walking with Christ? What happens when you give them the green light for that? 
well, you give a green light for people to enter hell. That can't be us. And, and prayerfully, it won't be any church here in our city either, right? That all of our churches would be uh, against that as well, right? And what I want you to see this morning is, is this is not just Paul, you know, having some novel idea. You know what? I have a thought. Is that what the Apostle Paul's doing? No. It, this is the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul saying, hey, this is what's coming. You better be prepared. Church leaders, you better be prepared. Deacons, you better be prepared. Small group leaders, you better be prepared. People who are like aspiring to lead in the church in some way, you better be prepared for this because this is going to creep its head in your church at some point. That's what the Spirit of God is saying. False teachers will arise in latter times. Are we in the latter times? I, I believe so. I certainly believe so. 1 John 2, 18-19 will come up on the screen. It says, Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us, but, they are going, but their going showed that none of them actually belonged to us. Are we seeing that happening? Oh, yeah. People who are deconstructing, you know what I'm talking about? Deconstructing their faith, things like that. This is the only place I know of where demons are mentioned in the pastoral epistles. And, and what I want you to see, my friends, is this. is just like God has good doctrine, Satan also wants to set up bad doctrine. And God does, Satan's always going to counterfeit it. So God is going to set up good, sound doctrine. Satan's going to say, I'm going to set up my own doctrine. He's going to counterfeit everything. Just like God has good ministers of faith, people who will stand for the gospel, you better believe the enemy also has people who will actively try to destroy the gospel. We call him the great imposter, don't we? And nature kind of provides us with a good illustration of what the enemy does, of his tactics. According to scientists, Arctic polar bears feed almost entirely on seals. And according to scientists, um, they, in, they enjoy a, a meal, a seal is a very good meal for, for a polar bear. And sometimes, to, in order to get this meal, they can't just chase after the seal. They have to use a little bit of trickery. They have to be cunning to get the seal. And so if the hole through which the seal gets his food is near the edge of the ice, the polar bear, what he does is he takes a deep breath, he holds his breath, and he swims underwater to that exact location where that hole is. And what the, what the polar bear does is he scratches slightly on the ice. And what happens is the seal thinks that it's fish under there. The seal dives in the water, going for fish, and when he dives in, he's immediately caught by a polar bear in his jaws. That sounds good. This sounds good. And so you dive head first into it. And when you dive head first into something that is false, now you are ensnared in the enemy's trap. Same thing, right? Same exact thing. Nature gives us that, that, that example. See, the first test, my friends, lean into this, the first test to see if something is a true, is it true or is it a lie, is what does it say about Jesus? What does it say about Jesus? See, demons are going to always, they're not going to accept Jesus. They're, everything they're going to do is all about denying Jesus. They don't want to acknowledge that Jesus really is God, even though they know he's God. They don't want to acknowledge it. They certainly don't want you acknowledging it. 
So what does it say about Jesus? The Apostle John said in 1 John 4, 1, 6, Do not believe every spirit. But what? Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Meaning Satan's already got people who, just like God has sent out good people, Satan is sending out bad people to come and corrupt. This is how you can recognize the spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not acknowledge that Jesus uh, does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. You, dear children, are from God, and have they are from the world, and therefore speak from the viewpoint of the world, and the world listens to them. We, though, are from who? We're from God, and whoever knows God listens to us, but whoever is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we recognize the spirit of truth and the spirit of falsehood. See, it comes as a shock to some people that Satan uses people who profess to be Christians in the church to accomplish his work. People get shocked by that all the time. What did we see, what did we see uh, Satan do with Peter? He tried to get Peter to convince Jesus to not do what he wanted to do and what he needed to do, right? right? He tried to get Peter to lead Jesus on a wrong path. Somebody who was a professing follower of Jesus, he tried to use his closest person, just like John just said, tried to use his closest person to, to get Jesus to do something other than what he knew he was supposed to do, right? Paul warned us that false teachers would arise from the church within, right? We saw that with Ananias and Sapphira, right, in the book of Acts. Now, you might say, well, they just lied. No, what they were trying to do is they were trying to deceive the church. They were trying to deceive the church at Jerusalem, and that's why they were dealt with so harshly. You know, one commentary says it this way. It says, some people will abandon the faith. Spiritual error is seldom due to innocent mistakes. It's more often due to the conscious strategies of God's spiritual enemies. Meaning when somebody walks away, the enemy was flooding their mind. The enemy maybe kept them from, from being in, in Bible study or being with the fellowship of other believers so that they were all by themselves. Scripture says that Satan prowls around like what? A lion looking for someone to devour. You ever watch those hunting shows? Lions, when they see one little gazelle off by itself, they're like, oh, you mine. Like, I'm going to have a good meal tonight. Like, that's what they do, don't they? They do the same thing. And in, the enemy looks at you the same way. You are weak by yourself. Can I just let you know that? Like, when you're not in Bible study, and I don't just mean Bible study for the sake of Bible study, when you're not in the fellowship of other believers who are helping to hold you accountable, encouraging you, praying for you, helping to strengthen you, you are very weak just like I am. I'm no different than you. We're all weak apart from the fellowship of believers. And so we need to be very aware. we got to be aware of the tactics and schemes that the enemy uses to destroy our faith in Christ. What I want you to understand, and we talked about this Wednesday night in our small group, I want you to understand something. The enemy is scheming against you right now. Like in this moment, even right now, the enemy is looking at you going, what do I have to offer you? What do I have to tempt you with to get you to walk away from Jesus? What can I do in your life? What do I have to take away from you to get you to walk away? Walk away. Sometimes it's about what, what can I take away from you to get you to walk away from Jesus? If God took away, or if, if your health, if you don't have health, you wake up tomorrow, you don't have health anymore. Would you walk away from Jesus? If you lost all your money, would you walk away from Jesus?
What would it take for you to walk away from Jesus? That's the question that the enemy is studying you with and looking at you and going, oh, they really love this. That's not of the Lord, but they love this. See, the enemy sees what you do in private. I don't see what you do in private. These people here don't see what you do in private. The enemy does. He sees what you do in private. He sees the things that you really say, that you say, I don't believe in those things, or I don't like those things, or God knows, you know, those things are bad. But in private, you're like, you're embracing those things. And the enemy sees that, and he goes, oh, now I, now I know. Now I know how to keep, keep you away from God. Now I know how to keep you weak. Now I know how to keep you in sin, separated from God. Because he's studying you. He's scheming against you. What did Jesus say to Peter? He told Peter that he prayed for him. Why? So that his faith wouldn't fail. And because Jesus knew that Satan was going to tempt Peter, not just to deny him three times, he wanted, what Satan wanted to do, is Satan wanted to put three nails in the faith of Peter. That's what he wanted to do. He wasn't just part of it, but he also wants to destroy the faith of Peter. And what happens there is Jesus prays for Peter. Jesus tells Peter, I prayed for you. I prayed for you so that you wouldn't fall away, so that your faith would not fall away. Satan wanted Peter to com completely abandon his faith in Jesus. And that's exactly what Satan did with Job too, isn't it? Are we seeing a pattern? Like this is the M.O. of Satan. Like, let me take things away from you, and I'll get you to break. I'll destroy your faith if I just take away somebody you love. I'll destroy your faith if I took away something that you hold dear. Your money, whatever, whatever you're trusting in, your security, whatever it is. I'll take this away from you, and you will crumble. That's the discussion that, God, that Satan has with, with God, isn't it? The accusation. Take this away from him and watch him crumble. Watch him turn on you. And it's the same thing with you and I. You and I, listen, we're not special in the sense that we get to avoid this. Like, you're a special person. I believe, I believe it. You are special, right? I love you. But we're not special in the sense that this does not apply to us. The enemy is scheming against you. He does want to destroy you. And so if we're going to avoid apostasy, we have to see it for what it is. It's Satan's main goal in this world. And for your life, he wants to destroy your faith in Jesus. Number two, to avoid apostasy, we have to be liars whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. That word hypocrisy in the Greek, it describes a, a play actor who wore a mask. And if you know anything about the Greeks, they wore these giant masks. Like they weren't just like a little mask, they were big masks so that people all the way who were, you know, at the very top of the amphitheater uh, could see what was happening and who that person was supposed to be. And so when it talks about this, this hypocritical, these hypocritical people, they're saying that these teachers are pretending to be something that they're not, somebody that they're not. The false teachers in Ephesus, they looked like really good, strong representatives of Christ. But they were actually leading people to believe lies. They weren't good teachers. And so the idea here is that their conscience was so destroyed, it said seared, that they refused to listen any longer to their own conscience. Like imagine your conscience being so broken, you can't even trust if something is right or wrong in your own mind. That's what he's saying. Their, their conscience was so fractured, so broken, so seared, they couldn't even trust their own conscience anymore. Kind of reminds me of, of leprosy. We've talked about this before. In, in leprosy, what happens when somebody gets that terrible skin disease? The, the sensory nerve endings in their skin, wherever they have those sores, oftentimes dies. So they can't feel pain anymore. You know, pain is actually a good thing. Why? 
So it's, just, it's painful. So you take your hand off immediately, right? It's, it's a sensory warning. Hey, get your hand off of this. Otherwise, what? Danger is going to happen. Worse danger is going to happen. Well, people with leprosy, they don't have that. Their sensory nerve endings are dead. So what happens? We know from scholars that oftentimes they would live in the streets and there were rats everywhere. So rats would eat on their skin and they wouldn't feel it. They would get hurt. They would get wounded. They would get infections. They wouldn't feel it. They might break a bone in a certain area. Can't feel it because the sensory nerve endings in that area are dead. And that's the same exact way here with people's consciences sometimes. Their conscience is so seared, they can't even, they can't even understand if something's a true or if it's a lie. They don't even know what's going on in their own mind. Second, that word seared is in perfect tense. And it means it's a condition, a continuing condition, a continuing state. And so what happens is when you are in a continual state of, of your, your conscience being seared, you will teach things without hesitation that might be wrong. You will say things without hesitation, with no regret, with no remorse, things that can be completely wrong. You won't even feel bad about it. Why? Because your conscience is so seared, you're so corrupted and so broken, you can't even understand what I just said was completely false and not of God. That is what Paul was saying. Was anybody of you have a dumb dog at home? <laughs> some of you, okay. Charles Medley of, of Rockford, Illinois, had some doubts about his dog named Bullet. Whenever Bullet saw a squirrel or a rabbit or a person, he would take off like a shot in that direction of that sound or of that person. It didn't matter that the dog was tied up. By the time he reached the end of his rope, he would be traveling at maximum velocity, heading straight for his target. But in an instant, as soon as he reached the end of that rope, that rope would jerk him back and Bullet would be coming to a sprawling halt. That beagle, it said that that beagle never learned its lesson. Never learned that what happens when you run as fast as you can while being tied to the end of a rope. See, God has also put a rope around us to a degree. This moral tug on our souls. That when you go too far, this moral tug says, no, too far. That's your conscience. Wrong, don't cross that line. Wrong, you know better, don't do this. The moral conscience. The sad thing, though, the difference between the dog and us and that rope is that what God has done for us is God doesn't prevent us from going too far. You have the choice of whether you're going to cross that line or you're not going to cross that line. So when you sin, you can't blame God. You can't to keep going. You just chose to keep going. And so what happens is our conscience can be deadened when we violate it repeatedly. How, do, how does that happen? You violate your conscience repeatedly when you continually give in to sin. You continually give in to sin, you sin one way, and then you sit there and you go, okay, I won't do that again. Never really repenting of it. The next day you wake up, do the same thing again. Anybody ever been entrapped in sin like that? And then there's sometimes you're so entrapped in that sin that you don't even feel bad when you're doing it anymore. You don't even feel guilty when you're doing this anymore. Like, that's what's happened to your conscience. Your conscience is being seared. Every time you give in to sin, you don't repent of it. Then what's happening is you're just searing your conscience even more. Think of like a piece of meat that you put on the grill. You're just pressing it down, pressing it down, pressing it down. You're searing this meat. You know, there's people who lead Bible studies, preach sermons, disciples others to practice the truth but they live in sin in private. 
We see that in Judas. Satan studied Judas. Do you know that? You guys understand that, right? It wasn't like God just said, okay, there's one of my disciples I'm just going to completely abandon and throw out. Just, just get rid of Judas. None of that worked. The enemy studied Judas. Judas served church for years. Just like some of you have served in ministry for a long time. Judas was the same way. What happens with Judas? See, Judas even preached maybe against the love of money to other people. Jesus says this, hey, you, you need to do this. But in private, Satan sees Judas loves money. Nobody else saw it. Jesus knew it, right? And Satan knew it. Judas loves money. So in private is how Satan was able to get a foothold in his life and turn him away from Jesus. Again, it comes back to what are you doing in private? When nobody else is looking, who are you? Because honestly, what we know is that's what character really is. Character is who are you when nobody's looking, right? Um, I'll never forget one time. I, I, I have told you, you know, a lot growing up, I was, man, I was really bad and was very far from God. And um, just very far from God. I'll never forget my grandpa picking me up one time. And I was in ninth grade. I had just gotten in very big trouble, trouble with the law and things like that. And so... My grandpa picks me up and he says, you know what? If I had $50 sitting here in this cup holder right here, I wouldn't trust you that you wouldn't steal it from me. And it broke my heart. And I, this is who I have become. My own grandpa tells me straight to my face, I love you, but I can't trust you. Because look at what you've proven. That who you are in private, who you are when we're not around you to help hold you accountable, look at what you're doing and what you get yourself into. And listen, that exact thing is still happening in the church today. Still happening. How do leaders fall? Because they're not who they are in the pulpit, who they are off the pulpit. How do small group leaders fall? Because they're not the same person leading the Bible study that's, that's leading in their home or doing things in their home. How do worship leaders fall? Same thing. Like how does the average, normal Christian like you and I, how do we fall? It's because we're not the same who we declare to be in front of everybody else that we are in, at home. Satan sees it. You are not hiding anything from anybody. You're hiding it maybe from us. Who cares? Satan sees. And God sees more importantly. This is what was happening in Ephesus. Paul had already warned the leaders in Acts chapter 20, our small group on Wednesday nights had studied that, that there would be people who would rise up and start teaching, you know, false and perverse teachings and trying to lead people to believe lies. Again, going back to our conscience really quick, we protect our conscience by sharpening it with the word of God, right? We submit to our conscience that's sharpened with the word of God. And we pretend before we move on, do you have a conscience that's sensitive to the word of God? How are you keeping a clear conscience today? What are you doing right now to protect your conscience? You might say, well, I've never really thought about it. The enemy's thought about it. He's thinking about that right now in your life. How can I destroy your conscience? Because if I can destroy your conscience enough, get you to do these things enough, I can get you to walk away from Jesus. That's what he thinks. How is God calling you to fix your conscience right now? I can tell you one way. Repent. Repent of whatever sin you've got going on right now in private that nobody else knows about. When we are we're going to sing today, you come to the altar, you get on your face, and you say, God, forgive me and help me. 
Help me with this. I can't do this on my own. You can't. I can't. We need God, don't we? And praise God, God will help us. Isn't he good? It's like Cedric and Gian and our team led us in singing today. He's a good father. You come to him and you say, help. He goes, you got it, son. You got it, daughter. I'm going to help you right now. I'm going to help you. It's what he does. Number three, to avoid apostasy, we have to be able to discern false teaching from godly teaching. They forbid people to marry and order themselves to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. That kind of describes the legalistic teaching of people who had departed from the faith. Right? They thought that, that, that you would be more holy to God if you didn't marry. Think about that for a second. If you don't get married, this is what they were teaching. If you don't get married, you will be more holy to God. If you don't eat certain foods, you're going to be more holy to God. Even though God didn't say that, we think this, so we'll say this. No, that's not how Bible teaching works. Right? Bible teaching doesn't work like I think, so I teach it and say this is fact. No. I teach what I know to be fact from the word of God that everybody else can discern and see for themselves too. And this is what we say is fact. This is what we hold to. But not them. Not in the church. See, there's always been people in the church who regard themselves as more spiritual than God. See, when you add things to God, you're sitting there saying, I'm more spiritual than you. God, you left, you left some things out. You didn't put these things in the Bible. I got to add them for you. Let me clean up your mess. Now, not, none of you in this room would sit there and say, I would never say that to God. You do that when you add to the things of God. Like if God has said, here's the, the directions and the instructions, and you say, but what about this? Let's put this on there. No. Like you are now adding and taking away freedom. You're taking away the abundance of life. And listen, there was, there was this ever-recurring heresy in the church. In every generation, there's people who try to be more strict than God. In every generation, again, there are people who think that they know more than the Lord does. I'm going to give you... Celibacy is definitely allowed for church leaders, and to a degree, it's encouraged for some church leaders. However, Scripture does not require celibacy as something for church leaders, that's not a requirement of God to lead in the church. See, the Catholic Church has required priests to remain celibate for hundreds of years. Now, some of you might sit there and say, oh, he's picking on the Catholics. No, I'm not. I'm giving you an example of something that's true. Right? I'm not throwing stones at the Catholic Church today, so please don't take it that way. I'm giving you an example of what the Apostle Paul talked about. Again, the Bible encourages but does not demand celibacy for priests or for church leaders. In fact, Paul recognizes that a lot of church leaders will, in fact, be married. It's why, like we saw in 1 Timothy chapter 3, what did he say? Hey, make sure they're the husband of one wife, because most of them will be married. With me? The Roman Catholic Church's requirement of celibacy is a sad example of a church taking something that the Bible might encourage and then transforming it into something that has to be a rule, taking away the freedom, taking away something that, that God had given Sadder, though, is the result of that. When you add on to the things of God and you take away some freedom that God has given to his people to enjoy, to enjoy part of the abundant life, when you take that away, you damage things. Celibacy. Men who God has not called to be celibate, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, are being required now to be celibate. And the result is what? When you haven't been given that gift... And you're not being empowered to exercise that gift in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now you're giving in to temptation at some point here. So what, what have we seen? 
we've seen a tremendous amount of adultery. We've seen a tremendous amount of, of sex outside of marriage. We've seen a tremendous amount of sexual abuse of children. Why? Because men are, these men are being required to be celibate even though they weren't gifted with that gift. You see what I'm talking about? Like this is what was happening in the early church too. Same type of thing. And so let me briefly say this. Before you need to be aware of Satan and his army, you need to be aware of your own sinful flesh. So yeah, we're talking a lot about Satan, and I want you to understand we are going to talk about that. That is important. But I have to make sure that you're aware. You have to be aware of your own sinful heart and own sinful flesh first. Because it's not always Satan every time you sin. Like every time you give in to sin, it wasn't because Satan made me do it. No, it was just the desire of your own heart. And you gave in to it. Sometimes that is the case, right? And so I need you to see that being aware of your own flesh, you know, uh, before and in front of the enemy is for this reason. Because it's sad that there's so many people who are blind and prideful in life. And there's so many people that God has set free from these things that can't wait to get back underneath them. A dog returning to its vomit. So many are blind and prideful that we can't wait to build a righteous resume in front of God. God, I know you sit there and you tell me it's Jesus' resume that lets me in here into heaven. It's Jesus' resume that lets me talk to you. It's Jesus' resume that earned my forgiveness. But Jesus and God, let, let, me, let me tell you something. That's for everybody else. Let me, let me show you how good I am. Let's look at my righteous resume, shall we? I, I serve in the church. I come to church. I go to Bible study twice a week. I give. I help old people cross the street. Look at all the good things I do. We've talked about this. Filthy rags. Disgusting. Right? Absolutely disgusting. And what I want to tell you is this, is your own self-righteousness for some of you, and maybe for myself too, to a degree, for some of us, is an idol that needs to be destroyed. It's something that needs to be destroyed in your life. Why? Because some of you, you're going to try and get into heaven based on your own self-righteousness instead of the righteousness of Christ. You're not getting in on that. Like you're only getting in. The only people who get into heaven are what? We talked about this on, 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 uh, on Palm Sunday when we did. It's all about Jesus, not about me. I don't have anything to get me in here. All I have is Jesus. That's all I got. See, false teaching usually focuses on a smaller doctrine at first. Not something big, you know, at first. Why? Because so many people would catch a hold of that and throw that person out. And say either repent, stop teaching that, or get out. Because that's what would happen here at New Beginnings. Let me just tell you. And New Beginnings, if you came to one of our groups or our Bible studies and you tried to teach something false, you would be corrected. And if you would keep doing it, we would tell you don't come back. Like, we would tell you don't come back. And whatever means necessary, you ain't going to come back. Why? We're going to protect not just the integrity of our church, but we're going to protect our church, our flock, from false teaching. It starts with something minor. Like Paul said, forbidding marriage, eating certain foods, pretty small. Honestly, really small. Some people would go like, why would they even, why was Paul even mentioning that? Here's why. Because teaching something false about something that's small gives a foothold to teach something false about something that's big. See what I'm talking about? You never give the enemy a foothold. He never should get a foothold. And that's exactly what happens. 
And so the end result is that false teaching usually leads to a license to sin or it leads to laws. God had given them ten. Hundreds of laws they came up with. Okay, God, you only gave us ten. That wasn't enough. We need hundreds. Wait, what? Number four. Lastly is this. To avoid apostasy, we have to be wise in the truth. First Timothy 4, 4 through 5. For everything God created is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and by prayer. God gave marriage for, for human life to continue. God gave food uh, for human life to be sustained. And so the example that Paul gives here is, is the enemy trying to corrupt things that God gave that were good to lead to the abundant life that God wants his people to experience. That's what the enemy wants to do. He wants to take something that God has said, this is good for you to enjoy, and for you to sit there and go, no, I can't have this because so-and-so said this would be bad. Right? Like, that's exactly what's, what's happening. You know, it's been said that, that bank tellers, and Gianna Hill, correct me if I'm wrong, but bank tellers are trained to discern counterfeit dollars. And how they do that is they spend time not studying the counterfeit dollar, but they spend time studying what does a real dollar look like, a real $100 bill, a real $20 bill. And that, thing, that has to be the same for Christians. Right? You can't and you shouldn't try to study every single false belief system out there in the world. There's a lot of them. Right? There's too many to be able to resist the lies when they come your way. You'll be able to discern, no, 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 that's not of God. That's false. And how do I know that's false? Because that doesn't go with what God said. Like, I know what God said, and that doesn't go with what God said. When Paul says every creation of God is good and no food is to be rejected, if received with thanksgiving, uh, for it is sanctified by God's word and by prayer. When he says that, again, he's referring to literal marriage and literal food. Both of them are supposed to be consecrated, which means they're both supposed to be set apart for holy use. Meaning, God gives you the gift of marriage for you to use for, holy, for, for holiness, and God gives you the gift of food for you to use for holiness. We can go back to Genesis and we can see how God consecrated marriage, right? He looks at Adam and Eve, and what does he say? Not good for Adam to be alone. Not good. And so he makes a suitable helper for him. And then God looked at their marriage and he said that it was what? Good. And that's the same thing for most Christians, right? It's God's will, right, not for every Christian to get married, but certainly there will be a lot of Christians who do get married. And Paul teaches that singleness is not a, is not a curse from God, it's a gift from God. Are you with me? Like, how many times in the church, and, and, and people who are single, I, I, I pray, that, listen, on behalf of people who have, who have said these things, I want you to understand your singleness is not a curse. It's a gift from God. It is a gift from God. Why? Because in, in marriage, you ha- your, your attention is divided, isn't it? It just is. And God expects that. It's why God gives some the, uh, the, this gift of singleness. But what I want you to see is both singleness and marriage can both be good and both be from God. One is not better or worse than the other. Right? And so marriage, they're, 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 it's a gift from God. Singleness is a gift from God, not a curse from God. We can see that food is consecrated by God if we go back to Genesis. In Genesis, we see that God gave people all seed-bearing plants for food. He also gave them animals to eat. And the New Testament, what it did is remove the regulations that the Old Testament had put on uh, people, that the Jews had imposed on people. In Acts chapter 10, we see God tell people, uh, Peter, don't uh, declare things unclean that God has made clean. If God has said this is clean, don't say that it's unclean. And so not only is our food clean because of God's word, but our food is clean because of prayer. 
This is why we pray before we eat. One of the reasons we pray before we eat. We pray to say thank you, God, for this. But we also pray and we say, God, help this to be used in a holy way in my life. As this food nourishes me, as this food, you know, helps me to be able to eat, then God, help me now to have the energy to serve you. See how this works? It's consecrated by the word. It's also consecrated by prayer. We, we know that we would go immediately to alcohol, probably being the most common example of this. One scholar said this. He said, there's always been grace before meat. The Jew always said his grace. He had grace for, four, for, four, for different things. When he ate fruits, he said, blessed art thou, king of the universe, who created the fruit of the tree. When he drank wine, he said, blessed art thou, king of the universe, who created the fruit of the vine. When he ate vegetables, he said, blessed art thou, king of the universe, who created the fruit of the earth. And when he ate bread, he said, blessed art thou, king of the universe, who bringest forth bread from the ground. Listen, the very fact that we thank God for it is what makes it sacred. Does it make sense? And so not even demons can touch something when it's been touched by the Spirit of God. Demons have no, no, nothing to do with it at that point. See, the true Christian doesn't serve God by enslaving himself to rules. See, some of you grew up in a very legalistic home. You know, we don't do this, we don't do this, we don't do this. And so the only way you feel holy, the only way you feel righteous is by obeying a bunch of rules and a bunch of regulations. It does not make you more righteous in God's eyes for you to obey a bunch of man-made rules. I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but it doesn't. Righteousness is simply imputed to you from Jesus. That's it. You have no righteousness of your own. He did for me. So I obey out of love, not out of fear. Are, are we tracking? Listen, I know I've been going for a little, a little bit here, but I want you to make sure that you understand this. Because I know that some of you, I've had discussions, and I know this is where some people struggle. Right? And listen, it's not, you're, I'm not immune to this. There's times where I'm sitting there going back to this. Going back to, okay, oh yeah, Christians don't do X, Y, Z. Well, where's that in scripture? I don't know. It's got to be there somewhere, right? I mean, I grew up that way. It's got to be there somewhere. No, it, actually it doesn't. Listen, if we're going to guard ourselves and others we love from apostasy, then friends, we have to, we must at all costs, we have to know what scripture says. We have to know what scripture says. God's word will always guard you. Ephesians 4, 11 through 12, Paul said, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then, what? We will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and blown there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. A lot of Christians, because they don't know the word of God, they're like spiritual infants is what Paul just said. Because you don't know the word of God, you'll believe anything. Because you don't know the word of God, somebody can just get up here in this pulpit and you'll on the screen and I encourage you to bring your own Bible. So you don't go, oh yeah, I'm just going to trust whatever that guy says. Don't just trust whatever I say. I'm sinful too. Right? you got to look for yourself. you got to look it up for yourself. See that this is exactly what he's saying. See for your own, with your own two eyes. When you go to Bible study, bring your Bible. Look for yourself. See what's being taught. Listen, if we're going to protect ourselves and guard against apostasy, then we got to be firmly planted and grounded in Scripture. I'll end with this. When a plane takes off, it, it needs a control tower. Right? It needs a control tower, and the control tower can see things that the pilot 
can't see. See, in an airplane, the pilot cannot see above them, and they can't see below themselves. Also, the pilot can't see the weather conditions that are awaiting them in their path. But you know who can? The air traffic controllers. They can see above. They can see what's coming. They can see what's going. They can see what's in their path. The word of God is the control tower for Christians. Where you and I, we only have a limited vantage point. You know that? Like we only have a limited vantage point. What God's word does is God's word communicates to you what you can't see happening in the spiritual realm. Things that you can't see coming your way, God's word says, this is what's coming. This is what's happening. This is what this means. The question I end with is, will you? As we pray, this is the time now where, if hey, your conscience is messed up. Your conscience is seared. Friend, brother, sister, you come. You come. Come pray. Come pray and let the Lord just let him help you. Cry out to him for help. Let me pray for us right now. God, you are a loving God. You're so loving. In fact, you're so loving that you let us learn and study your word. And part, part of the time when we study your word, it shows us where we're not walking in the way that you want us to walk so that we can correct that and we can walk in the way that you want us to walk. Lord, for some of us who are here, our consciences have been seared because we've continuously given into sin that you've told us to repent of, but we keep going back to it. So we pray for a movement of the Spirit. The Spirit sets people free. And so, Lord, would you set people free today from that? Would you heal seared consciences today? They need to know this is of God, this is not of God. Lord, I, I firmly believe if we're going to have a church that loves righteousness, that loves you, that follows you, Lord, then our consciences can't be seared. It's, it, it can't. We, we've got to have clean, healthy consciences. So, Lord, I'm going to pray for people to be brave in acknowledging their conscience may be seared. That, Lord, they would take that to you right now in this moment. They would say, Lord, heal my conscience. Lord, help me to know right from wrong, truth from error, lie from truth. Lord, help us. Lord, we're grateful that you do help, don't you? You do. You are so good. You help those who can't help themselves. And that's all of us. We're all helpless. We can't help ourselves, but God, you you are the one who is always there to help. So, Lord, again, I pray for a movement of your spirit right now. Lord, I know some of us are maybe tired, we're ready to, to leave. But, God, right now you have us here for this moment, for this purpose. Not just to get out of here quickly, but to deal with some things in our life. Nobody comes here by accident today. Nobody's here uh, just by happenstance. Lord, help us. Help us to understand. Help us to see. Help us to know in Jesus' name. Before we, there's uh, something that I want to do. I'm going to ask my dear sister, Miss Tina, would you come here, please? Come here, Miss Tina. Yes, you got to. You got to come here. Come on up here. Deacons, come on. 
Come on, deacons. Come, come, Tina, come. Okay, that's okay. Let's, let's go down here for a minute. Let's go, we'll, we'll, we'll go down here. Yeah, we're going to go down here, right in the middle. Come. Come on. You're okay. Um, Tina's last Sunday is with us today. Tina. I know, I'm trying. You know how I am. Sappy guy. I'm trying not to. My boys are there. I'm trying not to cry in front of them, but. Um, this dear sister has been, wow, a true support um, since day one. Since day one, uh, since I, I know even before I was the pastor, when I was the youth pastor here, what an encouragement she would be. How she would come alongside and she, she can say, hey, that spoke to me or I like this. She would tell me and she would always be quick with a resource too. How many resources she gave me? She gave me my, my first Thompson uh, chain study Bible. And she wrote in it, I'll never forget, she said, every pastor's got to have one of these. Everyone's got to have one. And that Bible has helped a lot, you know, being able to decipher where, you know, where to go uh, for verses and, and things like that. But Tina, you haven't just been an encourager to me, you've been an encourager to a lot of people. You've been a discipler to a lot of our women in our church. You've been someone who has always stood firm in the truth unwavering. This is the truth. This is what it is. And I, I respect that tremendously about you. I admire that tremendously about you. I know where, where, you, where you're going in, in North Carolina, there's a church that's getting a real blessing. We're losing a blessing, but another church is getting a blessing. And we are grateful for you. We love you so much. And I am so grateful to you as a brother in Christ and as a pastor for just the way that you have encouraged me and my wife 